0: Hello and welcome to RN First Bite, I'm Anita Barrow. Today we celebrate food in art and discover the meaning behind those lush paintings of fruit at the opening of the Harvest Exhibition at the Gallery of Modern Art in Brisbane. First though, to a still life of another kind. It was a moonless night with black and horrible clouds broken by sinuous shapes of flaming wind. This is the vivid description from Roman lawyer Pliny the Younger writing about the eruption of Mount Vesuvius almost 2,000 years ago. The volcanic column collapses onto itself and rolls down the mountain enveloping everything in its path. The resort trading town of Pompeii and nearby Herculaneum are buried under 20 feet of ash and debris, carbonising, preserving the towns, the people and their lives forever, and providing us with a snapshot of ancient Roman society. Every European summer, archaeologists and volunteers gather in Pompeii to gain more insights. Rob Brown is one of them. A Sydney archaeologist and teacher, he's a member of the Pompeii Food and Drink Project and has been sifting through the dining lives of the ancient city for the past seven years. I caught him just before he set off.
1: Our mandate is to basically look into all of the structures in Pompeii and look for evidence of uh, food and drink, basically, uh, whether that be production, consumption, storage, whatever, and try and piece together any patterns there might be about daily life.
0: And you've managed to piece quite a lot, haven't you?
1: We have, we have, um, from public dining areas and public shops and food stores. And, and the Romans gave us our first fast food restaurants, hot food bars, so Thermopoliums or Thermopolium. Ah, makes um, sense. Yep. Those wonderful shops with the large counters and the inset dolia where they kept the food.
0: I do recall a time when uh, Italy was very against having McDonald's on its shores. (laughs) True, and it's still hard to find
1: a McDonald's in Italy.
0: And what sort of food was uh, served in the fast food venues? A
1: type of porridge. Grains were also there. Sausages and things like that. Vegetables, usually some sort of stew was often served in those sort of places as well. Depending on the seasonal vegetables, Romans ate Seasonally, most people ate roughly the same type of material and the same types of food, not based on status so much. So even the common person would have had access to the same vegetables and some sort of meat or seafood products. Uh, and Pompeii was a trading city for the local agricultural region, but it also had access to the sea. So it had access to various things coming in on ships from other ports of call.
2: Adito in Mortarium satura- Savory salad. Mentam. Put savoury in the mortar with mint, rue, coriander, parsley, sliced leek, or, if it is not available, onion, lettuce and rocket leaves, green thyme, or catmint. Also pennyroyal and salted fresh cheese. This is all crushed together. Stir in a little peppered vinegar, put this mixture on a plate, and pour oil over it. Oleum superfundito.
0: And you do read about things like boiled parrot and, and stuffed dormice and, and, <laughs> and even
1: giraffe. You certainly do. Um, dormice was a particular um, delicacy. There's written evidence of dinner banquets, guests being shown what sort of dormice were on offer and how fat they were and uh, things like. Giraffes a little a little different, and and we know about the giraffe simply because in a recent excavation by an Australian archaeologist working for the University of Cincinnati, Dr. Stephen Ellis, they came across a bone which was the leg bone of a giraffe. So it's quite possible, or more more probable that creatures like giraffes and and other creatures used in beast hunts and stuff in the amphitheatre very often the meat was butchered and then sold off to the general public or to various groups
0: and there's evidence too that there were stalls around these amphitheatres possibly even butcheries
1: certainly would have that and we we know that from a lot of the artwork as well there's there's a famous painting that was found found in a property in pompeii and very close to the amphitheatre are a number of uh, properties that that had market gardens they also had outdoor triclinium so outdoor dining areas after a a great spectacle of either gladiators or some sort of fighting or beast hunts or criminal executions or whatever happened at the amphitheater that day people could uh, make their way to local restaurants or inns or hot food bars
0: and of course there were these inns and bars and and takeaway places because many people didn't have kitchens did they
1: it depends on not only the status, but the type of building you were living in. And we think of Roman housing as being single level, but in Pompeii and other other uh, Roman towns, apartment blocks could go up a number of storeys. So a the fire fi- hazard, I presume. They were certainly a fire hazard. And the emperors declared that in those sort of buildings, kitchens, they didn't allow for that to happen. The access to the fast food restaurants and, and the local bars was important for those classes and those people.
0: And bakeries too. There were a lot of bakeries. There were. We've
1: got um, over 30 bakeries uh, found in Pompeii, and they also are often attached to restaurants or attached to fast food bars as well.
0: And what kind of bread?
1: And We're talking about a, a non-risen bread, so a flattened type of bread. We've got evidence of that bread that is still carbonised from the day of the eruption. Uh, they were still in the oven, still waiting to uh, be picked up. If you think about it, Roman dining or, or the Romans weren't that different from us today and Um, the food
0: too i mean it was basically a mediterranean diet it it? was
1: a mediterranean diet with a lot of the vegetables we still get from that region today seafood different kinds of meats and and certainly fruits as well
0: and there was the sauce i mean there was a a very famous sauce that everybody splashed on practically everything called (laughs) garum garum wonderful stuff It's not that much
1: difference, I suppose, to fish sauce that you might buy today. And Pompeii in particular was um, a
0: central area for the making of garum. A poet described it as lordly garum, a costly gift made from the first blood of a still gasping mackerel.
2: (laughs) Mm. Use fatty fish, for example, sardines or mackerel, and a well-sealed pitched container. Add dried aromatic herbs possessing a strong flavour, such as dill, coriander, fennel, celery, mint, oregano and others, making a layer on the bottom of the container. Then put down a layer of fish. And over this, add a layer of salt, two fingers high. Repeat these layers until the container is filled. Let it rest for seven days in the sun. Then mix the sauce daily for 20 days. After that,
1: it becomes a liquid. And the stuff even at the bottom, the alec, was used as more like an anchovy type paste.
0: So everything used. And I think um, the best garum was made of fish livers, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, it, it it would be interesting uh, a job to have to basically sort out the fish that you've brought in on the catch and pull out the mackerel and make sure you've got their livers in there so that uh, it makes the best tasting garum.
0: They did like small things. There's a famous recipe of the lark's tongue. Uh-huh. Get a thousand larks, a thousand larks, remove their tongues and set aside, discard the larks, put the tongues in a pan with a little oil and saute quickly. Transfer to a hot platter, serves four. Mm. One of those fanciful
1: things you find on a Roman menu, a banquet type menu.
0: Well, I guess the you know tongue is in other cuisines. I mean, uh, duck tongues, for example, in China, and pork and beef tongues in in mm-hmm. British European cooking. But larks are such small birds, and I wonder if there's a practical reason that they, you know, there was an invasion every year on their crops, or they defecated on their washing, or something. So they, <laughs> so they, this was a way of controlling them when they became too prevalent.
1: It's extravagant. That would be someone quite well off and with uh, more hours in the day to ponder those sort of things and have wonderful dinner parties than uh, actual manual work. So.
0: And a lot of slaves. Yeah, and a lot of slaves. And you know, I mean, you do read about the orgies and the, and the overeating, and I mean, were they really sort of vomitoriums, as some people describe? The interesting thing is that
1: in Roman tradition, it was actually seen as bad manners to get drunk or to to put yourself into a state where you needed to go away and vomit but vomitorium certainly existed
0: and there was also dining around ceremonies and religion and there were dining rooms in mausoleums
1: there were. The ancestors were treated as though uh, they were living and, and it was customary for the Romans to have a feast at the funeral, I suppose a lot like we have a wake these days, but particularly those of the of the wealthier citizens were large places and very often inside had areas where people could sit and partake of a, of a feast on a special occasion or at a funeral. Pliny
2: the Younger on the eruption of Vesuvius in 79 A.D., you could hear the shrieks of women the wailing of infants and the shouting of men and there were some who prayed for death in their terror of dying. Many besought the aid of the gods but still more imagined there were no gods left and that the universe was plunged into eternal darkness forevermore.
0: I remember as A child seeing photographs of a couple in bed spooning. There they were. It was this kind of peaceful, cuddly night sleeping forever. It's a strange thing to see these families, these people, these animals, these family pets all frozen. No, it is. And it it is a still life. Pompeii is one large still
1: life in so many ways. It's a very touching sort of thing to go into these places and experience them and although things change in terms of technology and things change in terms of custom people have lived similar lives and the romans might have eaten a lot of things that may be different to what we would eat today a lot of it's still the same dining was part of that way of life that gave pleasure as well as the necessity of being able to have to eat you'll pick out of this
2: narrative whatever is most important For a letter is one thing, a history another. It is one thing writing to a friend and another writing to the public. Farewell.
0: Pliny the Younger, writing a letter to his lawyer friend, no doubt knowing that it would be immortalised. Rob Brown is an archaeologist who is on a flight as we speak for his annual sift through the dining lives of ancient Pompeii. The Pompeii Food and Drink Project has been going for more than a decade, I'll put a link to it, and to some more ancient Roman recipes to ponder, including ostrich ragu or maybe a sweet nut tart, but with a teaspoon of that favourite garum. You can read them on our website at abc.net.au slash rn, where you can also leave a comment or read our feature articles as well as the recipes. I'm Anita Barrow, and this is RN First Bite.
3: Hello, I'm Christine Manfield. I'm a Sydney-based chef, author, and gastronomic traveller. I'm also wearing the little title of Spice Queen or Spice Girl. Spice underpins everything I do in terms of bringing flavours together. When you keep your spices, it's really important to buy them in small quantities, a reputable brand. Keep your spices stored in a container, airtight container, away from light, heat and humidity. The whole spices will retain their aroma, their freshness and their pungency much longer than ground. If you need to dry roast your spices, do it in a pan over very low heat and this helps to release their fragrance and their volatile oils and then they become highly aromatic and that's when you can crush and grind them after they've been roasted. Today I'm going to talk about cumin. Cumin is a very small pale brown seed. Grows in a in a hot climate plant, which is a member of the parsley family. It's got a pungent aroma with a sort of peppermint, earthy, warm, slightly bitter taste. It's one of the most commonly used spices in world cuisine, from Indian to Sri Lankan to Arabic, Middle Eastern, North African, and European. Roasted cumin seeds can be mixed with sea salt flakes and ground together. I use this as one of my very basic seasonings when I'm grilling or barbecuing lamb and beef. I sprinkle some on to the meat first with a little bit of oil. And then at the end, when I'm slicing the meat, I sprinkle a little bit more over just for a little bit of that fresh thingy flavour at the end. You could also use ground cumin to season a very simple omelette. Just add some ground cumin in with your garlic and your chopped mint and maybe a little bit of parsley. And voila, you've got a spunky tasting omelette, just a little bit different to the norm. Also, if you want to do, a, you know, roast some baby carrots or some heirloom carrots, I usually crush some cumin seeds in a mortar and pestle with garlic and salt to make a bit of a fine paste. And then I mix in some lemon juice and some extra virgin olive oil to make a dressing, like a spiced vinaigrette add some chopped coriander leaves through so when you've cooked your carrots whether you've roasted them whole or whether you've steamed them or barbecued them just toss them through that dressing and just you know just see how the flavors really come alive
0: And there's some lovely references to cumin from ancient texts. In the Old Testament, Isaiah recommends beating cumin with a rod. Socrates believed it helped scholarly pursuits, and the Arabs mixed it with black pepper and honey, considering it to have aphrodisiac properties. In Europe in the Middle Ages, it was often carried in the pocket for the same reason and given to the bride and groom as a sign of commitment. It was also baked in bread and given to soldiers for good luck. And this is the first of our Pinch of Spice series with our resident Spice Queen, Christine Manfield. You'll hear more over the coming weeks. Now to the Gallery of Modern Art in Brisbane. Their new exhibition opened this week and it's all about food. Maria Tickle is there with its curator, Ellie Butrose.
4: Ellie, what is it about food that you're exploring with this exhibit? Harvest is... Looking at the
5: way that representations of food and art history are so intertwined and using discussions about food as a way to talk about art. So the exhibition is drawn from the gallery's collection, so it draws together over 150 works. So there's large-scale installations, photography, historical still lives, ceramics, and we have a public call-out project by Fallen Fruit, and that's brought together 150 objects from members of the public that all have something to do with pineapple as well.
4: We're just in the foyer of Goma here and as soon as you walk in, that's the first thing you see is this amazing wall of pineapple wallpaper.
5: So Fallen Fruit are an LA-based artist collective and they often make this beautiful Victorian repeat wallpaper pattern out of fruit. They started looking at public fruit. The idea being that in LA, people drive to the supermarket to get a lemon, but LA is a citrus grove and there's lemons growing all over on the street so they were trying to draw people's attention to this and made wallpaper out of uh, found fruit on the street and what we have done here is commissioned them to do a large-scale project that includes
4: a wallpaper a video and a display in the foyer cabinet. Tell me about some of the objects that have been donated by the public how many did you get?
5: Yes, we got over 150 objects that were selected by the artist and I think more than 250 submissions. We've had a hat with a pineapple taking a relaxing uh, break on the beach. We've got a whole pineapple outfit, beautiful pineapple lo- line drawings, ceramics, all sorts of knick-knacks. And, 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 of course, the
4: pineapple tea towel.
5: And pineapple tea towels... And the big pineapple is featured many times, of course, Queenslanders have a very strong connection with the big pineapple. everyone 's
4: been there on their school holidays and things like that. so is that the reason that the pineapple was chosen? Like why did falling fruit choose the pineapple?
5: Yeah they're, fallen fruit are really interested in the history of uh, fruit and do a lot of research into that, a social history as well. The pineapple was often a symbol of hospitality in the Americas because it could be carried very well, people would take it um, as a gift and so it took on this idea of a symbol of hospitality and was then reworked into uh, colonial architecture and craft so it was often appearing on gates and doorways as a sign of welcomeness. And then it was also taken up in the European Empire, people would hire pineapples to show their wealth And then pineapples became readily available to anyone and everyone with canning processes, so they were really interested in the kind of democratisation of the pineapple. And then when they were researching Queensland, they realised that we were one of the big pineapple industries, so it was perfect if they were going to do a commission for GOMA that they should do a commission on the pineapple.
4: OK, shall we move on to the still life? Oh, wow. Oh, wow, that's huge. This is uh, Sharana Shabazi,
5: Uh, this painting is six metres high And what we're looking at is a beautiful still life that's been painted by an Iranian billboard painter. The work was actually a collaboration with children from the West End Primary School. We did a workshop with kids, and they learnt about Sharana Shabazi's work. They learnt about the history of still life painting. And it was really about what would a still life from Brisbane look like. And so they collected all these different fruits and vegetables. So we see coconuts and hibiscuses and pineapples and dragon fruit and star fruit and grapes and strawberries painted lusciously large. And they created these arrangements and photographed them and then the artist chose one of the photographs and then sent it to an Iranian billboard painter who then you know, painted it on this very large scale over six metres high. And so it's really
4: quite an imposing and fantastic start to the exhibition. And the oldest still life you've got in here... Where is that?
5: That's uh, Alexander Kusman, and it's from 1650. And here we see pomegranates and grapes and beautiful lemons that are painted in this wonderfully uh, realistic and um, beautiful oil painting. And so it's really this picture of wealth and produce and exotic food that was available. Dutch still lifes were really objects to show your wealth and... Like the food that they depicted, they themselves became traded and exotic commodities. So the more exotic fruits in your still
4: life, the richer you were?
5: Exactly. And to be able to show that, you know, the thing about fruits is they have a short lifespan. And so if you could get them from some exotic place to your home in the fastest possible way, then
4: people would know that you had a lot of wealth available to you. And I notice in this one there's a peeled lemon and I was reading up on Vanitas which is a theme from around this time which talks about the transience of life and the futility of pleasure and says that if there's a peeled lemon in the painting it's a symbol that life is attractive to look at but bitter to taste. Am I reading too much into this?
5: No, uh, that is definitely in the picture and I guess that's also in contemporary works as well like if you think of, we have a video by Superflex called Flooded McDonald's and they've made a perfect replica of a McDonald's and over 20 minutes of the video it slowly floods with water and so it's really talking about that kind of conspicuous consumption and so here we have Kusman talking about the fragility of life and Superflex in the 2000s talking about how our consumption really does have a big impact on the world and so that's what this exhibition is trying to do is to bring those historical works and contemporary works and draw out those stories that they
4: both have in common. One thing I'd love to see which I think is a recent acquisition is the biospheres?
5: Yes the gallery's acquired four major pieces by Argentinian artist Thomas Saraceno so we can move into the next room and have a look.
4: Fantastic. So what are we looking at here? Could you describe the biospheres for us? So to me they look like huge terrariums that are suspended on spider webs. That's exactly what
5: they are. So Thomas Saracino has done a large body of work called Airport City and the idea being that we could live in these floating bubbles and that they would work like clouds. They could come together and make a large city and then break apart and make smaller cities and as part of that you would have these large biospheres that were floating gardens, some that were places that you would have leisure and work, and they could come together and move around as environmental things changed in the atmosphere.
4: Do they have plants inside them, or is that just the web we can see through?
5: So uh, we have a number of different biospheres. Of course, biosphere 1 is the Earth, and biosphere 2 is uh, the work at the very far end of the gallery that houses all these amazing plants called Talencia plants. And they just live on air and water. So they're already this sort of science fiction type of plant. And like the pineapples, they are a type of bromeliad. So there's a bromeliad theme going on in the exhibition. Thomas is also interested in an architecture that responds to our changing environment. And spiders are a perfect example of that. As their environments change, they change their webs accordingly. So architecture will no longer be bricks and mortar, but much more responsive to our environment. So there's one beautiful work that's just made out of a web of rope, and you can see there's references to spider webs in that, which also then becomes a wonderful metaphor for ecology because, you know, if something should happen to one part of the web, it reverberates throughout the whole web, and if we should
4: do something here in Australia, it affects the whole world. Can we go and have a look at the one with the plants inside?
5: Yes, let's walk down.
4: We're walking through the ground
5: floor. It's the long gallery that takes us from the foyer to the river.
4: And there's one, two, three, four glass, huge glass. How big is this one? This is the biggest one.
5: Yes, the sphere is three metres large, but then, of course, it has a number of ropes that are tensioned and are spindling outwards from there.
4: It's really beautiful. And the last one is the one with the plants in it, and that's held down by glass rocks. It's quite beautiful too. I have one question. How do you water it?
5: Well, some of the cords that you see threaded out uh, from the work are actually water and air pumps.
4: They look like little upside-down pineapple heads. Oh, a bit like a succulent, upside-down. The kids must want to touch it. (laughs) The kids want to touch everything in the art gallery. (laughs) And set the alarms off. (laughs) Ellie Butros, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, Thank you very much for coming in today. And there's quite a few kids coming through this exhibit. I wonder what they think. Let's ask this one. Hi, what's your name? Jacob. How old are you? Twelve. And we're in the biosphere section here at GOMA. What do you think of them? Do you like them?
3: Yeah, um, it reminds me of the solar system.
4: Why does it remind you of the solar system?
3: Just the big ones... Between them. So that's the sun and then you've got the plants around them.
4: What do you think of the spiderweb bits? What do you think that has to do with the solar system?
3: Like how it all shines.
4: Maybe how it's all interconnected? Yeah. Harvest is on at Goma until September twenty first. Back to you, Anita.
0: Thanks, Maria. And for more Food for Thought, head along to the GOMA Talks. They start this Thursday night and will be broadcast on RN over coming weeks. Future Tents, Big Ideas and Weekend Arts will each be hosting sessions discussing the future of food, the politics of food and food in art and art in food. And there's a great opportunity for listeners in Brisbane or those planning to travel there in the coming weeks. The Queensland Art Gallery is offering RN listeners four food for thought packages for each of the GOMA talks, which includes food, wine and a private tour of Harvest with the curator. The first one is this Thursday at 6.30pm, hosted by Anthony Fennell from Future Tense and is on the future of food. You'll find all the information for the GOMA talks and for those broadcast dates under events on the RN homepage. That's it for the program. Thanks to Maria Tickle and audio engineer John Jacobs. I'm Anita Barrow.
2: on Future Tense this
0: week. Massive open online courses. The phenomenon promised to revolutionise higher education a few years ago. But with recent research showing poor student retention rates, how successful has the MOOCs model been? We'll hear from the Pro Vice Chancellor of Education at Oxford on why MOOCs have no future at her university. That's Future Tense. Download the program from the RN website or look for us on iTunes.